26, smacked by Napoleon. I'm Merle Riedel, and you're listening to an April 11th, 2007 podcast from the Kansas State Historical Society. In this bi-weekly podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. This week, we kick off a 12-part series that focuses on objects from the museum's current exhibit, Game Faces, Kansans and Sports. In the first half, Assistant Museum Director Rebecca Martin examines fencing equipment used by a group of uber-athletic Germans. Was this Topeka Base Club a hotbed of German nationalism or a good excuse to drink beer? In the second part, we'll examine the connection between Emporia editor William Allen White and Lakota Indian Chief Sitting Bull when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, smacked by Napoleon. Good afternoon, Rebecca. Um, how are you doing? Doing pretty well, Merle. Good. How are you? Good. Um, we're going to talk about some fencing equipment that you, uh, you uh, did some research on. And um, I just want to first describe the fencing equipment. It's two foils and two masks, right? Mm-hmm. The foils are, they're, they're steel. Um, it's a long, narrow, sort of quadrangular-shaped shaft on, on the foil. A foil is like a kind of a lightweight version of a, of a rapier or yeah, sword. Yeah, it's, it's a training uh, sword, not a, yeah, not a saber. Okay. And then the masks are basically wire masks. But they have some kind of straw padded lining around the outside of them, you know, where it would come in contact with the face. But the leather is kind of chipping off so you can see the straw, which looks pretty scratchy on your face. <laughs> but it's pretty cool. Okay, so my first question um, these belong to George Krause, um, and they were fencing equipment that was used in Topeka in the late 19th century. Um, where does the sport of fencing come from? It doesn't come from Topeka or Kansas. Did you know that? I guess. But did you, did I, you guess that? I, it was speculation. Much to my disappointment, I realized in researching this that fencing had a centuries-old tradition that predates Kansas history by quite a long time. Uh, apparently, fencing started in Spain as a form of defense. It, it was, you know, not like I always tend to picture fencing in my mind as something involving Errol Flynn or Douglas Fairbanks jumping off of a castle steps onto a chandelier with a sword in one hand. And apparently that is a form of theatrical sword play that is not classical in its origins. Um, So it had its start in Spain, spread over Europe uh, for a number of centuries, and then eventually came across the pond to the United States and uh, was practiced uh, in Topeka, Kansas, at this club that we're going to be talking about. Who was George Krause? George was uh, a son of uh, German-born parents. They emigrated to the United States in probably the 1860s, um, early 1870s. He was born in 1876. George was? George was born in 1876 in Topeka, uh, lived his whole life in Topeka as far as we know. Uh, and died here in the mid-20th century. So he was a born and bred Kansan, mm-hmm. but he 
fenced uh, at this social club. Uh, his father was a fairly well-to-do person by, let's say, 19th century standards. He owned a harness-making company in Topeka, and George eventually inherited that company and ran it with his brother. Uh, and they were pretty well well off. I mean, not wealthy, but very, very comfortable by those standards. Um. Well, we talked about he was in a club, and he was in a club called the Turnverein. Who were the Turnverines? The Turnverines started in the early 1800s in Germany. Um, it was kind of nationalistic in its tones because uh, at the time, uh, Germany had been smacked uh, by Napoleon. And uh, the man who started the Sorry, he, they'd been what? <laughs> smacked. Smacked. Yeah, is that a good way of putting it? I like it. <laughs> uh, Napoleon had smacked a lot of European countries, and the Germans were smarting from that. And this man said, hey, you know, one way to, to build up our spirits and not make this happen again is to uh, to build the physical and mental and moral fortitude of our youth. And it kind of sounds like what Adolf Hitler was doing about mm -hmm. 130 years later. This man got started when he got when he started this movement. It had this really strong political overtones to it. But by the time it came um, over to the United States, it was really and, and in George Krause's day, it was really mostly a what we would consider to be kind of a gym um, and a social club. Um, and the the gymnastic part of it had um, a lot of things that we would recognize today as as building up your strength, like dumbbells, uh, barbells. Uh, parallel bars, the vaulting horse, things like that, climbing ropes. Um, so the Turners had a lot of, uh, of classes for their youth especially that were very, very much uh, founded in physical education. And in fact, a lot of, of historians believe that today's modern physical education movement had its roots in the Turnverines. Um, but then, as we said, you know, the Turners really were also a social organization at, by this time. And there were a lot of German immigrants living in the United States and in, in Kansas, too, at this time. Um, although, interestingly enough, you did not have to be a German to belong to a Turnverein club, at least not the Topeka club. Mm -hmm. uh, all you had to be was an American citizen or in the process of becoming an American citizen. So there were a lot of people who did not have German ancestry who belonged to the Turners because they liked the social aspect of it and, and they could also get some good physical exercise. Can you talk a little bit about the, the Turner, Turner Halls? Because I think that's a good way to represent how there's a social club and an athletic facility. Yeah, well, most of them had had um, gyms, but the gym could also be converted. Maybe, let's say maybe it had a stage at one end, so you could have a theatrical production in it, and then you could clear out the gym or push all the equipment to the edges of the of the walls or edges of the hall, and you could have a dance. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these Turner um, Turnverines had, uh, let's say, choral groups. Groups, they had bands, uh, they had dancing, they had literary exhibitions, stage productions, and yeah, it was really, it was really a great cultural organization for those communities. You don't see many Turnverein clubs today. Why is that? Well, it would be very tempting to say two world wars with Germany pretty much suppressed uh, any German customs and social clubs, but it was a little bit more complicated than that. Um, first of all, uh, we're going to get a little bit into the whole drinking aspect of German culture and society, especially at that time period. Um, there there was drinking going on. So the temperance people, the, uh, like uh, Carrie Nation, who um, were really upset about what alcohol, how, how alcohol had ravaged families um, at that time period. Uh, 
they kind of hit the Turner Halls pretty hard. And um, they took away a source of their income, which was selling drinks, selling beer and wine at these social events. Uh, that hit them financially. About the same time, early 1900s, 1910s, you started to see the automobile and movies appearing. So social clubs just weren't that much important anyway. I mean, they were still significant, but they really saw a decline in um, in their participation around this time. And then, of course, the First World War with Germany was in the teens, and the Second World War was in the 40s. But really, most Turnvereins had declined a lot in that intervening uh, in those intervening years. The 20s and the 30s. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a little confusion about uh, about the origin of these particular foils. Um, the arms company that made them, that forged them, is located in France, uh, but the foils are engraved with a made in Germany. Uh, what's the deal with that? This part, these foils were made in a part of Germany, Germany and France, let's say, known as Alsace. Uh, and I say Germany and France because it moved back and forth uh, in terms of its uh, cultural or its uh, country affiliation, especially in the um, 1800s and in the early 20th century. So, uh, and I won't get into the whole bloody history, but the foils were made in about a 50-year time period that straddled either side of 1900. In in which this part of that part of Europe was in Germany. Now today it's in France, and it just kind of keeps going back and forth. It'll be interesting to see if in another hundred years it goes back to Germany. Uh, my understanding is most of the people in Alsace speak French now, but that wasn't always true. And there's when you go to that part of Europe, you see a lot of Germany in that part of France. Mm-hmm. It's very mixed culturally. Mm-hmm. The Turners, uh, like you said. They were often known to drink beer in the Turner Halls. No. Yeah. So, and that seems a little odd to me. Um, do you think that beer drinking and fencing mixed well? And could this be the cause for so much protective equipment on a fencer? <laughs> Uh, when you uh, when you study turnferines and these uh, athletic competitions they had, all the athletes always said, "No, we never drank beer before the competitions. We ne- we would never do that," mm-hmm. uh, which makes a lot of sense because you know they were competing not just on their local level. I mean, with each other in their local clubs, but they would go to uh, state competitions, national competitions, and even some Topeka turners went to a world competition. Mm-hmm. So they were competing with thousands of other turners and. You know, you wouldn't want to be, you wouldn't certainly want to be drunk or even feeling a little good um, before you competed in what, you know, was, I mean, you could kind of picture it was like the Olympics for the Turners. Mm-hmm. Um, so, no, they did not mix. And although you'd probably like to think that, you know, the protective gear would help with a drunken Turner, I suspect that the drinking that was going on happened after the competition right. or was among the non athletes. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Rebecca. You're welcome. Now it's time to play Six Degrees of William Allen White. First, we start off with last episode's challenge, which was connect William Allen White to Sitting Bull. And the clue was the only taxidermied participant of the Battle of Little Bighorn. And, Nikayla, I believe you have this one solved. Yes, I figured it out. How does it work? Okay. William Allen White attended the University of Kansas from 1886 to 1889. While he was at KU, one of his professors was Francis Snow. Francis Snow was the head of the biology department in which Lewis Lindsay Dyke was a teacher. Right. Dyke's no slouch, right? He's pretty fam- famous himself. He is. Right. He's very connected. Um, 
Lewis Lindsay Dyke. That's a clue for future (laughs) (laughs) Lewis Lindsay Dyke, taxidermied Comanche, which was a horse that survived the Battle of Little Bighorn. That's the taxidermied participant. That was the part of the clue. Exactly. Um, At the Battle of Little Bighorn, the 7th Cavalry took on Sioux and Cheyenne, and Sitting Bull was their leader. Impressive, Michaela. But I, I, I want to say you also found out an interesting tidbit about Comanche himself, that he was quite the warrior. What is, the, what is was, it? Comanche was wounded 12 times. Three times were severe wounds at the Battle of Little Bighorn, and he survived. And more horrifying was that when the um, Sioux and Cheyenne started making the attack on the cavalry, Custer told his men to shoot their horses and build a wall to try to block them from the Native Americans, and it didn't work. Apparently not. Yeah. Comanche wasn't the only horse to survive, but he's the most famous horse to survive. I have a question, Nikayla. Can you see the holes in Comanche's hide today when you visit him at the Natural History Museum? I think he's been restored enough. And when they did the taxidermy, I think they, like, did repairs and stuff. So you can't see scars or anything like that, really. Darn. Did you say arrow arrow holes? Oh <laughs> uh, well. However, oh. he was wounded. He does look rough because he's had he's had a tough life post taxidermy. He had a tough life. <laughs> okay, now it's time for uh, the next uh, the challenge for the next episode. And Rebecca, you have that challenge for us. Yes, the challenge is to connect William Allen White to the Titanic, and the clue is a certain rich man on the Titanic. A certain rich man on the Titanic. I also just want to point out, like, there was a lot of famous people on the Titanic that died, right? So you think this would actually be pretty easy to connect the Titanic to William Allen White, but uh, how long did you spend trying to figure this one out? (laughs) Well, I could get the certain rich man on the Titanic really fast, but connecting him to William Allen White took about an hour. But it was not impossible. It's, oh, no, no, not at all. All right. Well, thanks, guys. If you think you know the answer to this week's challenge, send your solution to podcasts at kshs.org. That's podcasts with an S. That concludes episode 26, Smacked by Napoleon. If you'd like to actually see the Turnverein fencing mask and foils, you can. They're currently on exhibit at the Kansas Museum of History. Come back in two weeks when curator Blair Tarr continues the sports series by explaining what players in Lawrence, Kansas were doing with a man-sized baseball bat and a steel ball. This podcast is a production of the Kansas State Historical Society.